0: Welcome to Bioethics in the Margins. We are a group of bioethicists from different institutions across the country. This podcast represents our views and those of our guests, but we do not speak for our universities or medical centers, nor for any formalized bioethics organizations. Our mission is to bring marginalized topics and voices into the bioethics discourse. This podcast is hosted by Dr. Amelia Barwise, Associate Professor of Medicine and Assistant Professor of Biomedical Ethics at the Mayo Clinic, and Dr. Kirk Johnson, assistant professor of Justice Studies and medical Humanities at Montclair State University. Please enjoy this conversation
1: Hello and welcome to another episode of bioethics in the margins. Uh, we're so excited to have uh, our interviewee here, our guest Dr. Rachel Fabi uh, she is an, um, an, a, an associate professor in the Center of Bioethics and Humanities at SUNY Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York. She serves as a member of SUNY Upstate University Hospital's ethics consultation service, and as a faculty research affiliate of the Learner Center for Public Health Promotion at Syracuse University. Dr. Faber completed her PhD in health policy and management in the bioethics and health policy track at the John Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health. In 2019, Dr. Fabi was awarded the Greenwall Fellowship in Bioethics by the National Academy of Medicine. And in 2021, she was elected to the position of Director-at-Large of the American Society for Bioethics and Humanities. Her research focuses on the ethics of uh, policies that affect immigrant health. Outside of work, Dr. Fabi solves and creates crossword puzzles, which is an awesome fact. And I am a big fan of crossword puzzles myself. So Dr. Fabi. A big hearty of bioethics and the margins. Welcome to you.
2: Thank you. Thanks so much for having me.
1: Oh, it's our pleasure. It's our pleasure. Uh, so let's dive in. Um, so first, uh, what is your journey uh, leading you to where you are now in, in the current work that you're doing?
2: Sure. So um, I have been sort of in bioethics and this intersection of bioethics and health policy since college, when I like designed and named my own major, bioethics and health policy. Um, So it's been a pretty straight path for me. Um, I did my PhD, as you mentioned, at Johns Hopkins in the um, Department of Health Policy and Management where they have a bioethics track. Uh, So it's essentially a public health ethics program. Uh, And while I was there, I did a little bit of work with the Hastings Center um, during sort of the summer between my first and second year where I got involved with their undocumented patients project. Um, And that was led by uh, Nancy Berlinger and Michael Guzmano. And I got involved with sort of doing some research around the question of how undocumented immigrants access prenatal care. Um, And I became really fascinated with this one policy um, that states can use to provide prenatal care to undocumented pregnant people, essentially by treating their fetus as a citizen for the purposes of receiving health insurance coverage. And that concept was so wild to me that you know, even in states that protected abortion rights, a fetus could have access to health insurance. And that's how we're going to give the mother health insurance. And so I became really interested in that question. I did my dissertation sort of exploring that policy question. And since then, I've been doing work, continuing work in the immigration and policy space, immigrant health, um, expanding not just to look now at undocumented pregnant people, but Um, Other policies that affect access to care for undocumented people, for legal residents, for refugees, for asylum seekers. And so I've sort of built um, a bit of a research portfolio in that space, just exploring the ways that we treat people differently for purposes of health care on the basis of what I would consider to be a morally arbitrary characteristic, which is their immigration status.
3: So just for to kind of lay the groundwork, can you kind of give us an idea of some of the basic statistics about immigration, the numbers of people coming here um, and sort of what are the reasons that people are seeking asylum in the US? Sure. Yeah.
2: So, I mean, there, when we talk about immigrant health, there are so many different categories of people that sort of fall under that umbrella. So, you know, in terms of um, just sort of the raw numbers of people who are foreign-born who were not born in the United States who who live here now, um, that's about 13% of the, the population, right? It's a pretty significant chunk. Um, and then sort of within that, we have these categories, like undocumented immigrants represent about 11 million people, um, people who have lawful permanent residency status, so a green card, um, that's about 12 million, so slightly more, um, about double that are naturalized citizens, so people who came here probably with a green card or for, um, or another status, um, and then became citizens. That's about 21 million people. Um, And then we have sort of separately the whole category of refugees, which is a very specific definition, right? It's a person who is fleeing persecution on the basis of some protected class, like religion or um, like, you know, political beliefs, right? Things that are protected um, under international law who have been granted Refugee status by the UN High Commissioner for Refugees. So it's a very specific status that you can only get if you meet those very limited definitions Um, and there, you know, the US has admitted about 3 million refugees since 1980. But in the last, you know, five or so years, that number has really the number of people admitted has really plummeted to um, only about 25,000 people were admitted as refugees last year. Um, And that category excludes a lot of people who are also fleeing their home countries for reasons that aren't aren't protected, right? You might be leaving political violence, you might be leaving economic distress, you might be leaving climate disasters, um, and those aren't protected reasons. So you don't necessarily qualify for refugee status and you still aren't safe at home and you still have a reason to flee, but you're treated differently under the law. And you're, you know, eligible for much less once you actually arrive in a a safe other country.
3: So those would be asylum seekers, would they?
2: It could be. So you could have asylum seekers, people who are trying to claim asylum for one of these reasons. Um, And uh, so you are a refugee if you left your home country, went to a second country and are trying to get, you know, sort of placed into a third like the u.s but if you don't leave your country if you're an internally displaced person you don't qualify for refugee status or if you leave for a reason other than one of those protected ones and you show up somewhere and try to claim asylum you know your your claims are just going to be treated differently
3: but thinking about the people that are mostly coming here can you kind of describe a little bit about um whether they're documented or undocumented, um, what would be the reasons that they would mostly need to leave their countries and and come here?
2: I mean, I think everyone's reason is different, right? We've seen in the last couple of years, a spike, for instance, in people coming from the Ukraine. um, And that's as a result of political violence. Um, But you also have sort of um, a steady flow of people coming from um, parts of Central and South America that have been destabilized politically um, are economically distressed or are sort of dealing with violence, gang violence, um, state violence. Um, and so you know, the reasons that people leave are all very diverse. and something that I'm really interested in from an ethics perspective is whether the reasons for migration matter morally. Um, you know, we certainly treat them differently, whether you know, you left for economic reasons or for, religious persecution reasons you're going to be treated very differently under the law um and they're you know i'm not convinced personally that there should be a moral difference in how we treat people based on their
3: reasons yeah that is an interesting point um so you've done as you mentioned you've done a lot to understand the ethical implications of some of the immigration policy that we have so just again, to get some basic understanding for everyone, um, can you outline what Title 42 is and the uh, Migrant Protection Protocol of the Remain in Mexico? Because um, those have been sort of talked about a lot recently in the media. So,
2: Sure. So um, both MPP, the Migrant Protection Protocol, is also known as Remain in Mexico, and Title 42, or its, it's current imp- implementation, Are Trump era policies that were intended to exclude migrants? It was, you know, both were aimed at keeping people from entering the US legally. Um, So the migrant protection protocols would require people who tried to apply for asylum in the US to remain in Mexico. You would have to wait until your hearing date on the Mexican side of the border um often in very dangerous border towns places where um gang violence was was pretty widespread and as a result of mpp you know tens of thousands of people were turned away at the border forced to wait in mexico and then experienced assaults experienced kidnapping experienced there were you know murders of people who were trying to apply for asylum in the us and who were not a- admitted to await their hearing um and then title 42 Um, It's interesting because Title 42 isn't actually an immigration policy at all. It was originally intended to be a public health policy introduced in the 40s, essentially saying that if there is like widespread contagious disease in a country, the surgeon general can say we're not letting people in from that country right now. Um, But the Trump administration sort of weaponized Title 42, this public health policy, to exclude migrants at the border during COVID-19. Um, so instead of going through this normal process where you apply for asylum and you're given a hearing date, people were just being routinely turned away at the border, um, which had similar effects to MPP. Right? People were still sort of just gathering on the Mexican side of the border, experiencing the dangers of of living without access to sanitation and food and medical care. Um, so, arguably, it made of COVID pandemic worse, right, that people aren't getting access to the things that they need to stay healthy. Um, And it was was using this public health policy for immigration ends. And even after we had vaccination and had rapid testing and had sort of a way to respond to COVID, Title 42 persisted, right? The the border states were saying, or the, the attorneys general of border states were arguing that Title 42 needed to remain in place. Long after, you know, they had stopped taking COVID seriously, it was clearly no longer about COVID and was only about immigration. Um, And so Title 42 remained in place past the end of the Trump administration through most of the Biden administration and actually only ended a few months ago in May. Um, And so that was followed. I'm just going to keep going, telling the story of immigration policy right now. That was followed in May with a new policy from the biden administration that essentially denied the asylum claims of anyone who entered the u.s not at a port of entry with with an appointment um and so if you crossed illegally and you know didn't follow this set of prescribed rules that were very difficult to follow because of the wait times um your asylum claim is just routinely denied um that rule was actually struck down this morning (laughs) so It'll be interesting to see what happens next. Um, it's currently the judge who struck down that rule stayed his own ruling for two weeks so that the government can appeal it. And so it's just kind of in limbo what's gonna happen at the border next.
3: As you say, the justifications that are used are very questionable and they didn't really evolve as our knowledge evolved. They seem to have been conveniently used um, for various purposes. Um, just one other question then before I hand it back to Kirk you also wrote a very interesting article about uh, a Trump era DHS policy about this public charge rule so can you outline we're all learning a lot today about what the public (laughs) charge rule is and you know the harms that can that can come from it Um, thank you yeah
2: yeah so the public charge rule is also a rule that predates the Trump administration and it's like creation, right? It's the idea that um, the U.S. has the right to exclude people to keep them from immigrating here if they are um, a risk of becoming a public charge, which I'm putting that in air quotes. You can't see that because this is a audio medium, but scare quotes uh, around public charge, essentially meaning that they would be primarily dependent on the government for subsistence. And so historically, the way that the government cashed that out was have you been reliant on cash welfare or have you been institutionalized long-term at government expense? And if the answer to those questions was yes, then the government might say you can't have a green card, right? Um, But the Trump administration took those two things, the uh, cash benefits and institutionalization at government expense and added a whole bunch of stuff to it. So they added use of Medicaid or Medicare. They tried to add use of CHIP Uh, use of SNAP benefits, use of housing benefits, essentially saying, if you have used government benefits at all, you are going to be a public charge and we can deny you a green card. And the purpose of this rule was to scare people into not using public benefits um, because ostensibly, uh, according to, again, scare quotes, they wanted people to be self-sufficient, right? And it um according to the trump administration went against self-sufficiency to use government benefits um there was uh, a lot of backlash a lot of outcry about this new public charge rule and this new interpretation of what it means to be a public charge that diverged from historic interpretations um and so when they published the proposed rule um, they got a ton of comments from people because there's a public comment process uh where people essentially said don't do this it's going to cause a lot of harms to your question right they, they said people will withdraw from medical care that they need they won't get the care this will be bad for you know pandemics right which turned out to be pretty prescient um that it, it would have a chilling effect essentially on immigrants use of benefits for which they're actually eligible right they're not using benefits that they're not allowed to be using um and and that did kind of bear out so the public charge rule didn't isn't currently in effect. It went into effect for a short time. It was sort of put on hold because of COVID and then withdrawn entirely by the Biden administration. But you know, immigrants rights activists and and clinicians who see immigrant patients have sort of said, despite not being in effect, we're still seeing the chilling effect because people are afraid if they use benefits now, if the administration changes, this rule could come back and it will be counted against them in the future. Um, so, despite not even being in effect anymore, the public charge rule has still had these sort of echoing, uh, long-term chilling effects on people's use
1: of healthcare. There's a wonderful article that I had opportunity to read um, regarding sterilization in the U.S. Immigration and Customs enfor- Enforcement or ICE's detention ethical failures and systemic injustice, and this was in, um, I believe. Uh, the academic uh, public health journal, correct? American, yeah, journal American public, journal health.
2: public health.
1: Yep. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so check it out. It's a really great read. Um, and it still is disturbing because when you uh, think about sterilization, you think about, oh, this is like something out of eugenics out of the 20th century, right? But a uh, little do we know, or at least we should know, that sterilization still goes on today. So I would like to uh, get your input about uh, reproductive justice because uh, this is connected to. Of course, um, prenatal uh, care, prenatal uh, abortions, which is another excellent article you wrote. Uh, But for this article, um, can you just expound what is actually going on uh, through the usage of sterilization uh, toward the immigrant community?
2: Yeah, so that article talked specifically about allegations uh, that were borne out um, Mm -hmm. that women in ICE detention in Georgia, in a particular ICE detention facility in Georgia, um, were being subjected to gynecological procedures without full informed consent um that women were being brought to this OBGYN and waking up you know after signing some papers that they didn't understand that weren't in a language that they spoke you know with incisions that they had not consented to um this was investigated by congress and it was borne out that this you know this one OBGYN um was you know performing procedures without consent um and you know, I, I think it's important to contextualize this, as you said, against the backdrop of like, the you know, 20th century forced sterilizations of mm-hmm. black and brown people in this country and sort of layering that with an immigrant identity, right? So um, I have another paper that was in the American Journal of Public Health a few years ago with some co-authors about how the Trump administration was weaponizing reproductive injustice and using that as a cudgel to deter immigration. And so... You know this this piece about ICE detention facilities is just sort of another piece of this puzzle. Where, you know, on top of you know, performing sterilizations and and other gynecological procedures without consent, the U.S. government um, has also, you know, subjected pregnant people who want to carry out their pregnancies. To substandard care in detention facilities, people have had miscarriages. People have had stillbirths in detention um, because of substandard care, and because you're detaining pregnant people despite your own guidelines. Both ICE and CPP have guidelines that say that most pregnant people should be, you know, presumed released presumptively. Um, We also looked at how the Trump administration was denying abortion care to minors who were in their custody. Um, unaccompanied minors who would enter the U.S. um, alone, right? They're between ages of like nine and 17 pregnant girls who were being denied abortions despite requesting them and forced to carry pregnancies that were likely the result of rape on their way to the United States uh, to term, right? And so all of these kind of, uh, you know, reproductive injustices were creating a disincentive, like they were intended, it was intentional, it was a designed plan to deter immigration. Um, And then we also saw, just to layer one more reproductive injustice onto this, um, you know, sandwich, um, the family separation policy at the border, which also occurred under the Trump administration, where children and their parents were being separated. Sometimes the parents were being deported and the children placed with foster families. And some of those families have still not been reunited five, six years later.
1: Wow. And to add another unfortunate layer to to use your terminology, the sandwich, um, even folks who are actual citizens because of the overturning of Roe versus Wade very recently. It's another um, um, dilemma re- regarding reproductive justice um, as well, which um, is another huge another topic of uh, uh, for another podcast, perhaps. Um, but, yeah, there's a lot of um, there's a lot of attacks on uh, reproductive uh, freedoms and reproductive justice. Uh, that we're seeing in our country recently. Um, to add to that conversation, uh, another great uh, article, um, it's in the uh, Milbank Quarterly, um, so please uh, check it out for our listeners here. Uh, you talk about um, state policy making and stated reasons. Uh, this is the title, uh, Prenatal Care for Undocumented Immigrants in an Era of Abortion um, Restriction. Uh, Can you uh, please expound a little bit more about um, your recent findings and the research in regards to uh, prenatal care for undocumented immigrants?
2: Yeah, so that's that's the work that I was mentioning earlier that sort of got me into this space in the first place was my sort of discovery of and then subsequent obsession with this policy um, known as the unborn child option. And that Is a policy option that states can take to provide prenatal care to pregnant undocumented immigrants, because in general, if you're undocumented, you don't qualify for federally funded or publicly funded insurance. Um, You can maybe seek care in a federally qualified health center on a sliding fee scale, but you you can't be insured on a public program. And there are some states where that's not the case, Um, but in most states, it's it's pretty strict and. This option, which came about in the early 2000s, this was a like compassionate conservatism policy introduced by the Bush administration, um, lets states make that shift and say that fetus is a citizen for purposes of receiving health insurance, right? And so a lot of states that adopted it, not all of them, but some of the states that adopted this policy did so not because they were trying to provide access to prenatal care to immigrants, right? That was just sort of the cover, but because they thought it would set a precedent that would undermine Roe v. Wade. Because if a fetus is a citizen, how can you abort that fetus, right? And it's sort of, um, it passed in a lot of conservative states, like this is the law of the land in Nebraska and Texas. They have this policy because it set that precedent. But like, fascinatingly, there are also quote unquote, blue states that use the same policy, but do so with sort of this caveat written into the language of the policy that it has no bearing on reproductive rights. Um, so for instance, California had the same policy as Nebraska, um, but they said this doesn't affect a woman's right to access an abortion in our state. Um, and so there are sort of two different ways of using the same policy, one for its you know, stated purpose, right? Providing prenatal care, for undocumented people whose babies when they're born are citizens, right? So there's, if you know, the humanity of a person isn't enough to convince you that they should have access to prenatal care, the citizenship of their fetus might be. Um, but also there are states using the same policy because they thought it would help undermine Roe v. Wade, which has now been done. So it'll, mm-hmm. inter- it'll be interesting to see what happens in the states if they'll continue with this policy.
1: Yeah, and my last question, uh, very interesting. So uh, my last question before I bring it uh, back to Amelia is, of course, the in- interpretation of uh, the right to privacy, um, which I know the foundational bedrock of Roe v. Wade until it was overturned. So it's inter- just a, a comment. It's interesting that uh, on one hand, the interpretation of right to privacy is not for the actual mother, but for the fetus, the one interpretation and then another interpretation, the right to privacy, is completely for, of course, the mother to and more blue states, quote unquote, more progressive states. Right. The right to privacy is not really towards the fetus, but towards the actual uh, mother. And they could, depending, of course, the, the term they're in, first or second term, um, could actually perform an abortion. So it's really interesting, um, as you eloquently stated in our um Talk with you that how laws could be interpreted in in, in usage for um, more liberation, more freedom, uh, but also can be interpreted uh, to quell that to have a little a lot more restrictions dependent on what status you are, and also dependent on what state you're actually entering in. So, um, just a comment of just interesting how literally in the past year or a little over a year or so how. Um, things change based off of who's in power um, and laws and policies change based off of, of course, who's in power and um, and what status you're in at the particular time. So uh, really interesting and um, thank you for sharing.
3: Yeah, I just wanted to um, sort of go back to, you know, your article about the sterilizations and ice detention and sort of, obviously there's a policy there, which, you know, we don't agree with, Um, but obviously there's people enforcing that and that are conducting these sort of medical procedures so you know we can change policies and that type of thing change governments and but how do we who should be sort of punished for acting in these sort of unethical ways at the front line and I know this is sort of going on as you mentioned with you know terminations and things there's a lot of debate people that are sort of caught in the crosshairs of what they should be doing. But if we think about the ICE scenario, sort of what, what do you think can be done to help some of these sort of clinicians and people that are running those facilities to sort of be doing, you know, the, the right thing that they'd be expected to do in an institution in another healthcare setting? you know, why is there no sort of governance of their behavior and there's no sort of punishment or there doesn't seem to be any consequences to to those clinicians?
2: Yeah, it's a really interesting question. I think, I mean, part of the problem here is that there are policies like this is, that wasn't legal, right? Like these, you know, clinicians performing any gynecological procedures without consent, totally illegal. There are laws in place, there are ICE and CBP have you know, policies in place. The problem is that they're not always following their own policies and there aren't enforcement mechanisms, or if there are, they're not, you know, stringent enough to make sure that that actually is followed. And I think it puts clinicians who work in detention facilities in a really tough spot, right? Like you don't want to just say, I'm not, I, I disagree with the idea of detaining immigrants, so no one should work in a detention facility because they're wrong, right? Because then those people who are going to be detained whether you're there or not don't have access to healthcare right i think it's actually really important that we have clinicians who work in these settings even if they disagree fundamentally with with you know the immigration policy that landed people there in the first place but it sort of leaves them you know in this tough spot where they're caught between their own moral compass and standards of care and and what's expected of them in that you know in, in that facility um and i think you know one thing that you would want clinicians in that position to do is to act as whistleblowers. So for instance, in this Georgia detention facility, it was a nurse, Don Wooten, who who was the whistleblower, who said, you know, I'm hearing from these de- detained immigrants that they are having these procedures. And she she went public with it, right? She like found an advocacy group and, and worked with them to sort of expose this pattern. And so that's sort of the encouragement that I would give to people who are working or clinicians who are working in detention facilities or if, you know, in prisons, you know, to get away from the immigration context, but prisons also have like clinicians who work there, right? Even if they are, uh, you know, prison abolitionists, you that you would still hope that prisoners have access to healthcare. And so whistleblowing and, and calling out um, when you see things like this happening, that's, I think, the best you can do when you are the person working in such an environment
3: can you give us an idea of how you'd like to see immigration policy sort of evolve what would be the ideal what um because you mentioned a lot of these things are trump era policies and biden administration seems to be kind of clamping down on some but unfortunately continuing other ones so it's a really contentious issue and um i'm an immigrant so but I. Sure you know, I'm just kind of wondering what would you think would be the ideal sort of scenario for how we take immigrants in, you know, how immigrants come to the U S um, you know, other countries have policies about like Canada, you know, about whether you've got some skill that's required in the country. I think, you know, we know that we need immigrants to work. There's they're doing a lot of useful jobs that other people won't do or can't do. So, you know, how how should this sort of, what would be the optimal way that uh, we could see immigration working? And I know that's kind of a lot. <laughs> <so>.
2: <laughs> yeah, yeah, F- fix the immigration system in two minutes, go. Yeah, I mean, I think there are two answers to that question, right? There's the, you know, in if I could wave my magic wand and and have the immigration system that I think is the right one, uh, you know, I am maybe on a more extreme end and personally I'm more of an open borders um Advocate, right? I think that it's not like there's no space in the US, right? We have the room to take in more people, we have the infrastructure. Um, and we need people, you know, we have an aging population. And I think opening our borders would be good for the economy. But I'm not like <laughs> to be fair, I'm a bioethicist and not like a political economist or a political scientist who knows like the perfect solution here. But that's sort of my my gut reaction of like what I think is probably what we should be doing. But the problem is, right, I don't have a magic wand and any policy changes that do happen are going to be happening against an incredibly polarized political backdrop. Um, and I think it's really unlikely. I mean, <laughs> the scenario that I just outlined is, is never is an impossibility, politically speaking. But even like a more kind and compassionate immigration system than the one that we have is i i don't want to say out of reach but i think that it, it's going to take longer to get there than we would think is ideal right i think um given the politics of the moment and the way that immigration has become such a you know hot button politicized issue you can that people campaign on um federal immigration policy is unlikely to change in a positive direction anytime soon and so i think from like a health policy perspective that's where states are really important Um, and so you'll see a lot of state policy changing with regard to not you know who can enter the country because that's out of their hands but how we treat immigrants once they're within our states right and so you know states like california are beginning to offer undocumented immigrants Health insurance, like they can get on Medi-Cal, which is California's Medicaid, if they meet certain criteria, um, and that was that's not really the case anywhere else. Um, there are more states that are offering CHIP to undocumented children. Uh, there are states that are offering, for instance, access to maintenance dialysis instead of emergency dialysis for undocumented immigrants. And so, at the state level, you see some movement towards a more compassionate and just healthcare system for immigrants. Um, But I think, I think federally, we've got a long way to go um, before that'll be possible.
1: What are your thoughts about doctors? How um, or why should uh, physicians advocate for undocumented immigrants? Have they advocated for undocumented immigrants? undocumented immigrants before, AMA, like in your experience, what what has the clout of the medical profession um, done regarding all of the injustices that you have uh, mentioned previously?
2: Yeah, I love that question. So one of the classes that I teach here at SUNY Upstate, I teach a series of electives on physician advocacy. So I'm trying to teach my med students how to become physician advocates. And I, I teach actually a lot of case studies of individual clinicians who have done this kind of advocacy for undocumented immigrants, because that's the area that I know best. Um, and one clinician I talk about all the time uh, is Lily Cervantes, who is a doctor in Colorado, who is responsible for that state changing their policy around dialysis for undocumented immigrants. So, Hmm. you know, she was working in a hospital, seeing all the time patients coming in um, with end-stage kidney disease, you know, actively dying because they weren't getting maintenance dialysis. And they would get dialyzed in the emergency department and then sent home. And then they would come back, however many days later, the next time they were crashing and in need of dialysis. And so this bouncing in and out of the ED Obviously terrible for patients, terrible for their families, and also really hard on the clinicians who knew that if they could just get a chair in a dialysis center for regular dialysis, they wouldn't need that emergency care. So they would be healthier, they would be safer, and it's more cost effective. Um, And she knew that and she saw that. um, But, you know, having a few stories doesn't change minds. What she did was she researched it and she documented Sort of, here are the experiences of immigrants with end-stage kidney disease. Here are the experiences of clinicians who treat them. And here's the cost savings. And she sort of, you know, developed that research and then brought it to Colorado's Medicaid director and said, you should be funding this. And then they did, right? And so, and there are 19, 20 other states now that have done the same thing because it's like really obvious once you look at it, that access to, you know, regular care, preventive care. You know, it's just healthier for immigrants. It is healthier for citizens because health is not like you don't just have it yourself; it's shared. Our, the health of one person affects the health of other people. We live in a community. We live in a society, um, and so being able to show that um, and having the clout that she has as a doctor, right, being a medical professional, um, it it sort of lends weight to what she says. And having that research to back it up lends weight to what she says. And that's what I've been trying to teach my students, too, is like you are uniquely positioned to observe the effect of these unjust policies on your patients. And you are uniquely qualified to speak to them because of you've seen it and because you have this social clout. Like policymakers will listen to you. Um, and so to any clinicians listening right now, you need to I mean, I don't want to tell you what to do, but I recommend using that clout for good. Right. If you see something unjust you know, do the research, do your homework, and bring it to a policymaker who can listen to you and make that change.
1: Yeah, indeed. Um, And to your knowledge, has there been any actual organizations that have collectively spoken out against um, the mistreatment of undocumented immigrants?
2: Sure. Yeah, I think one, one example that I know really well is that ACOG has spoken out on access to prenatal care for undocumented immigrants, right? That's sort of where I started here. Um, they issued a statement, I believe in 2015, basically saying you shouldn't deny anyone access to like basic prenatal care on the basis of their immigration status, right? Everyone who is pregnant should have access to prenatal care. Um, And I thought that was a really powerful statement coming from ACOG, right? The American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists, again, uniquely positioned to comment on this and like very well respected. And I don't, you know, It hasn't changed federal policy, but we have seen states taking these steps, adopting this policy um, that will cover prenatal care.
3: Anything else that we haven't covered that you want to highlight from your your work? And we'll have all your, uh, we've recently launched our website. So we will have all your articles up there. Bioethicsinthemargins.org.
2: I have a piece coming out in the New England Journal of Medicine um, about expanding access to care to DACA recipients. So deferred action for childhood arrivals. Um, who are undocumented, but they were brought to the U.S. as children before 2007. There's sort of a a number of um, eligibility criteria in place. You have to have been under a certain age before a certain year. Um, But if you have DACA status, the Biden administration a couple of months ago published a new rule similar to the public charge rule, right, like just promulgating rules in the Federal Register, um, saying that DACA recipients will be able to purchase health insurance on the exchanges uh, which has not been like with subsidies, which has not been the case historically. And so we're seeing these like, again, that's a baby step, but it's happening at the federal federal level. Um, and so that's another thing to keep an eye on is, you know, a lot of the movement hap- is happening at the state level, but the movement that is happening federally is happening for what you might call sympathetic populations, right? Like DACA recipients, sometimes called dreamers, right? The idea is like, oh, they're kids, it wasn't their fault, and we should give them more things, they should have access to health insurance. I'm a little bit, you know, wary of that sort of good immigrant narrative, the idea that there are some people who did this right, and some people who did it wrong, or some people whose fault it is, and some people who it isn't, and we should treat them differently. That troubles me. But I am happy to see some movement on the federal level um, around DACA recipients, because it does indicate that maybe there's some hope there, despite how bleak of a picture I just painted. (laughs)
0: Thank you for listening to another great conversation on Bioethics in the Margins. This podcast is hosted by Amelia Barwise and Kirk Johnson. Our producer is Elizabeth Chung. Our editor is Nicole Strand. Our theme music was written and produced by Pablo Cuartas. And we are grateful for the assistance of Wendy Jiang and Benjamin Foster. Join us again next time.